With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the reading of the New York Times for Wednesday, the 19th of October, 2022. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The New York Times is donated to Radio I by the Lexington Herald-Leader. Thank you, Herald-Leader. Your reader for today is Mary Sue Hoskins. We'll start today's reading with the Merriam-Webster Word of the Day. Today's word is writhe. W-R-I-T-H-E, writhe. Writhe means to twist. The word is often used when the body or a bodily part is twisting, and especially when it is twisting in pain. Here's an example of the word writhe used in a sentence. After suffering an injury during the game, he lay on the football field, writhing in pain. And now we'll turn to the front page of today's digital edition of the New York Times. These are the articles that appear there. Russian barrage targets power, water, and heat for Ukraine's civilians. The Fed, staring down two big choices, charts an aggressive path. Acquittal of Russia analyst deals final blow to Trump-era prosecutor. What does abortion mean? Even the word itself is up for debate. Italy's next government hinges on a familiar face, Silvio Berlusconi. And finally, they forgot about us, inside the wait for refugee status. We'll turn now to the lead article, Russia, Russian barrage targets power, water, and heat for Ukraine's civilians. Kiev, Ukraine. From towns near the front lines to high rises in the capital, Ukrainians faced shortages of electricity, water, and heat on Tuesday as Russians, Russia's bombardment of civilian targets and infrastructure threatened millions of people with the prospect of a desolate winter without basic services. The Russian barrage heralds a new phase of the war. Even as the Kremlin's forces struggle on the battlefield, they have stepped up efforts to inflict suffering from afar. Civilians and infrastructure have been targets since the start of the invasion, but Russia has sharply increased long-range strikes deep into Ukraine, focusing on vital utility networks whose collapse would yield a new kind of humanitarian disaster there. Since October 10th, the Russian attacks have destroyed 30% of Ukraine's power stations and caused massive blackouts across the country, President Zelensky said on Tuesday. 
Residents are being urged, in some cases forced by circumstances, to conserve water and energy. Businesses are turning off illuminated signs and billboards are no longer lit up at night. A government minister, Oleksiy Chernysov, said 408 sites in Ukraine had been struck in that time, including 45 energy facilities. Many of the attacks have also hit thermal energy plants that generate steam for heating homes and businesses. The destruction of houses and lack of access to fuel or electricity due to damaged infrastructure could become a matter of life or death if people are unable to heat their homes, Dr. Hans Henry P. Kluge, the World Health Organization's director for Europe, said on Friday. The United Nations resident coordinator for Ukraine, Denise Brown, told CNN on Tuesday that the devastation threatened a high risk of mortality during the winter months. In parts of Kyiv, the capital, the authorities warned people not to drink tap water, which was running cloudy after it was compromised by airstrikes on Monday. In another neighborhood, a field kitchen was set up to provide food for those without water or electricity. People lined up at stores to fill bottles with fresh water, and electricity suppliers warned that the city would continue to experience blackouts while repairs were underway. In one neighborhood on the outskirts of the northern city of Chernihiv, residents said there had been several days in a row when electricity was turned off from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. to conserve energy. At a restaurant in the city, a waiter apologized to patrons about the dim lighting that left menus barely visible, noting that the establishment was complying with a request to turn off unnecessary lights. In the central city of Zertogmir, electric trolleys and trams were shut down because there was no electricity to run them, and the mayor said the hospitals were running on emergency backup generators. In some high-rises, the water pressure was so low that only the first few floors had running water. Russia's stepped-up campaign of striking cities far from the front lines comes even as its forces have struggled in eastern and southern Ukraine. Since early last month, the Ukrainians have been on the offensive, retaking territory seized by Russia this year, though the movement appears to have slowed in recent days. The Russian position appears to be particularly endangered in the strategic southern region and the city of Kherson, which was captured by Moscow's forces early in the war. Ukrainian forces have severed the bridges that were used to resupply and reinforce Russian troops on the west bank of the Dnipro River. The Russian general commanding the war effort, Sergei Zorovkin, on Tuesday, offered a tacit admission that his forces there might have to retreat, while the Kremlin-appointed regional administrator said civilians would be evacuated from some areas. Our future plans and actions regarding the city of Kherson will depend on the unfolding military tactical situation, General Sorovkin said in a televised statement. I repeat, today it is already quite difficult. On Tuesday, Estonia's defense minister, Hanno Pevker, warned that General Sirovkin 
was likely to extend his reputation for ruthlessness by launching more missile and drone barrages against civilian and critical infrastructure. For him, the civilian lives are basically nothing, Mr. Pevcor told reporters after meeting with Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III in Washington. He's ready to continue these kinds of actions against civilians, and the aim is clear. The aim is to put the Ukrainian people under constant terror and constant threat. The Kremlin has called the bombing of Ukrainian cities retaliation for the October 8th attack that badly damaged the only bridge linking Crimea to Russian lands to the east, a vital supply line for Russian forces in southern Ukraine that was a pet project of President Vladimir V. Putin. Russia's defense ministry said that it launched long-range strikes on Tuesday targeting the military control and energy systems of Ukraine, along with depots storing foreign-supplied military weapons and equipment. Its claims could not be independently verified. And for the first time, Russia is making heavy use of drones, many of them bought from Iran, that dive into their targets and detonate their warheads on impact. Ukrainian forces claim to have shot down most of the drones, but enough have penetrated air defenses to do significant damage, prompting Ukrainians to reassess their tactics. The drones, which are cheap, are often launched by the dozens. On the ground, anti-aircraft fire, ranging from sophisticated missile batteries to soldiers shooting their rifles, has suddenly taken on new import as Ukraine scrambles to create an intensive anti-drone campaign. In Washington on Tuesday, Brigadier General Patrick S. Ryder, the Pentagon's press secretary, condemned the Russian attacks against Ukraine's electrical grid, saying that the Kremlin was obviously trying to inflict pain on the civilian society as well as try to have an impact on Ukrainian forces. But what we've seen so far is Ukraine be very resilient and their ability to get things like their power grids back up online quickly, General Ryder told reporters. In the meantime, our focus will continue to be on working with them to identify what their needs are to include things like air defense. Ballistic missiles traveling at thousands of miles per hour are extremely hard to intercept. Cruise missiles flying at several hundred miles per hour are easier to hit, but flying very low can be harder to detect. Drones generally do not travel over 100 miles per hour, making them fairly easy to shoot down. The challenge lies in their numbers. A Ukrainian pilot was hailed as a hero after shooting down five Ukrainian-made drones and two cruise missiles in one sortie last week, only to collide with the debris from a drone in midair, forcing him to eject from his disabled MiG-29 fighter jet. His plane crashed, damaging several houses and a power line, but did not cause any injuries. Within a short period of time, we are adapting to this kind of weapon and are starting to destroy it successfully. The pilot, who identified himself only by a nickname, Karaya, told local news media afterward. 
NATO countries have delivered to Ukraine air defense systems that are effective against drones and will send more in the coming days, the alliance's secretary general, Hans Stoltenberg, said on Tuesday at a conference in Berlin. On Tuesday in Kiev, one of several cities shaken by explosions, blasts hit a district on the eastern bank of the Dnipro, according to the mayor, Vitaly Klitschko. The attack killed at least five people and knocked out electricity and water in parts of the city, officials said. Mr. Klitschko said that an object of critical infrastructure had been struck but did not elaborate. Kriolo Tamoshenko, a senior official in Mr. Zelensky's office, said that at least three strikes had hit an energy site, resulting in serious damage. In Mykolaiv, a southern city, a Russian missile destroyed a residential building and a flower market, killing one man, according to Vitaly Kim, the regional administrator. He said the attack had been made with an S-300, an anti-aircraft missile. Russia's increased use of drones and repurposed munitions like anti-aircraft missiles to hit ground targets indicates that its forces are running low on the precision-guided cruise and ballistic missiles that have been their preferred weapons for long-range strikes, according to Western analysts. The new focus on bombing sites, Ukraine's officials and allies say, suggests that the Kremlin, unable to beat Ukraine's military, has shifted to trying to destroy Ukraine's society and its will to resist. For many Ukrainians, the response so far has been as much defiance as fear, with people emerging from basements and subway stations once the air raid sirens stop and going about their lives. We'll now move for our next article from the Ukraine back to the U.S., the title of this article is The Fed Staring Down Two Big Choices, Charts and Aggressive Path. Federal Reserve officials have coalesced around a plan to raise interest rates by three-quarters of a point next month as policymakers grow alarmed by the staying power of rapid price increases and increasingly worried that inflation is now feeding on itself. Such concerns could also prompt the Fed to raise rates at least slightly higher next year than previously forecast as officials face two huge choices at their coming meetings, when to slow rapid rate increases and when to stop them altogether. Central bankers had expected to debate slowing down at their November meeting. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But a rash of recent data suggesting that the labor market is still strong and that inflation is unrelenting, has them poised to delay serious discussion of a smaller move for at least a month. The conversation about whether to scale back is now more likely to happen in December. 
Officials may also feel the need to push rates higher than they had expected as recently as September, as inflation remains stubborn, even in the face of substantial moves to try to wrestle it under control. While the central bank had penciled in a peak rate of 4.6% next year, that could nudge up depending on incoming data. Rates are now set around 3.1%, and the Fed's next forecast will be released in December. Fed officials have grown steadily more aggressive in their battle against inflation this year as the price burst sweeping the globe has proved more persistent than just about anyone expected. And for now, they have little reason to let up. A report last week showed that consumer price index prices climbed by 6.6% over the year through September, even after food and fuel prices were stripped out. A new 40-year high for that closely watched core index. It's a little bit hard to slow down without an apparent reason, said Alan Blinder, a former Fed vice chair who is now at Princeton University. Mr. Blinder expects the Fed to make another big move at this coming meeting. If you were Jay Powell and the Fed slowed to 50, what would you say, he said. They can't say we've seen progress on inflation. That would be laughed out of court. Policymakers came into the year expecting to barely lift interest rates in 2022, forecasting that they would close out the year below 1%, up from around zero. But as inflation ratcheted steadily higher and then plateaued near the quickest pace since the early 1980s, they became more determined to stamp it out, even if doing so comes at a near-term cost to the economy. Officials are afraid that if they allow fast inflation to linger, it will become a permanent feature of the American economy. Workers might ask for bigger wage increases each year if they think that costs will steadily increase. Companies anticipating higher wage bills and feeling confident that consumers will not be shocked by price increases might increase what they're charging more drastically and regularly. The longer the current bout of high inflation continues, the greater the chance that expectations of higher inflation will become entrenched, Mr. Powell, the Fed chair, warned at his news conference last month. There are mounting signs in the data that today's inflation is less and less the result of one-off trends that are likely to fade on their own over time. Supply chains are healing, and shipping costs that had spiked have come back down, but consumer prices continue to increase rapidly month after month. Those increases are driven by a broad array of goods and services, including climbing housing costs, pet care services, and dental visits. In their latest meeting minutes, officials acknowledged that inflation was declining more slowly than they had previously been anticipating, and that price pressures had persisted across a broad array of product categories. Since then, inflation has only shown signs of deepening. Even measures of inflation that try to strip out noise in the data are unusually firm. And there is little evidence so far that the Fed's policy is working to tamp down price increases. 
Fed moves take time to play out, but their effects are already pretty clear in overall economic data. The housing market is slowing sharply. Demand is, pull, is beginning to pull back, and people are eating into their savings stockpiles. Yet prices have shown little reaction to those trends. We haven't yet made meaningful progress on inflation, Christopher Waller, a Fed governor, said during a recent speech. If that continues, it could force Fed officials to do more next year to constrain rate increases. James Bullard, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank at St. Louis and a voter on policy this year, signaled in an interview with Reuters last week that he might favor another big three-quarter point rate increase in December, taking the policy rate to around 4.6% and then further moves next year. It's very possible that incoming data could push officials higher on the policy rate, Mr. Bullard said. He said it was also possible that price increases would begin to fade, however, allowing for a pause. Neil Kashkari, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, said at an event on Tuesday that absent actual progress on lowering core inflation, he did not see why he would favor stopping rates at 4.5 or 4.75% next year. We're not even sure that the problem is not getting worse. I'm not ready to declare a pause until we at least have that confidence, he said. Nathan Sheets, global chief economist at Citi, expects that Fed officials will slow their rate increases in line with their most recent economic projections, moving by three-quarters of a point in November, half a point in December, and a quarter point early in 2023 before pausing. But he said there were notable risks that they end up raising rates by more. The Fed has struggled to explain that even if it hikes by less than three-quarters of a point, it remains determined to fight against inflation, Mr. Sheets said. The central bank does not want investors to believe that its dedication to fighting inflation is beginning to crack. If market players think that financial conditions might ease, making credit cheaper and more available and working at cross-purposes to the Fed's goals. That happened after Mr. Powell's July news conference when the chair hinted that rate increases might soon slow and investors incorrectly began to expect an imminent central bank retreat. When he opened the door to it, the market said, Aha! The Fed's pivoting, Mr. Sheets said. It's been a tricky message so far. Of course, there are some reasons to hope that the inflation picture could change, which would give the Fed a more clear-cut reason to slow down. Used car prices are coming down at a wholesale level, and that could begin to more fully feed into consumer prices. Retailers are announcing discounts as inventories pile up. Companies, which continue to rake in unusually high profits as they manage to charge more than their goods and services cost to produce, are expected to slash their profit guidance as consumers begin to pull back. There are also some nascent signs that the labor market is cooling back to something more normal. 
job openings have begun to come down and average hourly earnings have shown signs of moderating. But hiring has persisted at an unusually rapid pace, and a quarterly measure of wages and benefit compensation that the Fed puts greater stock in, the Employment Cost Index, has continued to climb rapidly. That could keep pressure on service prices as restaurants and health care providers try to cover rising labor bills and higher pay could help consumers to keep spending. At the same time, newer problems could emerge. Gas prices have risen again this month, for instance, and their future trajectory is uncertain. Recent history offers plenty of reasons for caution. The Fed has spent 18 months hoping that inflation would soon abate, only to have that expectation repeatedly dashed by reality. But, with an outlook that is so uncertain, officials have emphasized in recent speeches that policy will be made on a meeting-by-meeting basis. One reason it is too soon to say whether a fifth big rate move in December will be appropriate. The outlook for inflation and economic activity is subject to unusual uncertainty, Michelle Bowman, a Fed governor, said in a speech last week. We should continue to reiterate that we will remain highly attentive to inflation risks. This is probably the best and clearest forward guidance we can provide at this point. We'll move now to this article about past President Trump. The name of the article is Acquittal of Russia Analyst Deals Final Blow to Trump-Era Prosecutor. Washington. Igor Dashenko, an analyst who provided much of the research for a notorious dossier of unproven assertions and rumors about former President Donald J. Trump and Russia, was acquitted on Tuesday on four counts of lying to the FBI about one of his sources. The verdict was a final blow to the politically charged criminal investigation by John H. Durham, the special counsel appointed by Attorney General William P. Barr three years ago, to scour the FBI's inquiry into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia for any wrongdoing. Mr. Trump and his supporters had long insisted the Durham inquiry would prove a deep state conspiracy against him, but despite pursuing various such claims, Mr. Durham never charged any high-level government officials. Instead, he developed two cases centered on the narrow charge of making false statements in outside efforts to scrutinize purported links between Mr. Trump and Russia. He crammed the indictments with extraneous material and insinuations that he thought Democrats had sought to frame Mr. Trump for collusion with Russia, though he did not charge any such conspiracy. While the cases were not as expansive as Trump supporters had expected, they nevertheless provided more fodder for grievances about the Russia investigation. But once the cases reached courtrooms, they both crumbled The first accused Michael Sussman, a cybersecurity lawyer with ties to Democrats, of lying to the FBI when he shared a tip about possible cyber links between Mr. Trump and Russia. It ended 
in an acquittal in May. And even before the jurors unanimously found Mr. Danchenko not guilty after deliberating for a day, the judge overseeing the trial, Anthony Tringa, took the extraordinary step last week of acquitting him on a fifth, a fifth such count. The prosecution had failed to produce sufficient evidence for that charge to even go to the jury, he said. Mr. Durham expressed disappointment in the verdict on Tuesday, issuing the same statement he had shared after Mr. Sussman's trial in May. We respect the jury's decision and thank them for their service, he said. Stuart Sears, a lawyer for Mr. Danchenko, said the prosecution had been a nightmare for his client and his family. We have known all along that Igor Danchenko was innocent, and we are glad the American public knows that now, too, he said. During closing arguments in both the Sussman and Danchenko cases, defense lawyers pointed to evidence they said showed that Mr. Durham and his team had lost their way, ignoring signs of serious flaws in their cases because they were so intent on convicting someone. I submit to you that if this trial has proven anything, it's that the special counsel's investigation was focused on proving crimes at any cost as opposed to investigating whether any occurred, Mr. Sears said on Monday. The prosecutorial results Mr. Durham produced in his three and a half years of investigating the Trump-Russia inquiry stood in contrast to what had been the highest profile act of his career when he led a special investigation of the CIA's Bush-era torture of terrorism detainees and destruction of videos of interrogation sessions. At the time, Mr. Durham had set a high bar for charges and for releasing information related With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ...to the investigation. Throughout his 2008 through 2012 investigation, he found no one he deemed worthy of indi indictment, even though two detainees had died in the CIA's custody. And he fought a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit to avoid disclosing to the public his findings and witness interview records. The Danchenko trial is likely to be Mr. Durham's last courtroom act as a prosecutor. He is also expected to submit a final report to the Justice Department this year. The original accusations against Mr. Danchenko, an analyst who was born in Russia and is now based in the United States, centered on two of his sources for the so-called Steele dossier, a compendium of political opposition research 
that asserted that Mr. Trump's 2016 campaign was conspiring with Russia. The dossier was indirectly funded by Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and the Democratic National Committee. They paid a law firm, which paid a research firm, which in turn subcontracted to a firm run by Christopher Steele, a former British spy. Mr. Steele hired Mr. Danchenko to canvas contacts in Russia and Europe about Mr. Trump's dealings in Russia. BuzzFeed published the document in January 2017, and it attracted widespread attention, particularly a salacious claim about a purported blackmail tape. But it became clear that it was not credible, in part because Mr. Danchenko himself told the FBI that Mr. Steele had exaggerated his research, presenting uncorroborated speculation as fact. Mr. Trump and his supporters have frequently, and falsely, sought to conflate the dossier with the official investigation into Mr. Trump's ties to Russia. But a 2019 Inspector General's report established that the FBI officials who opened the inquiry did not know about the dossier at the time, and the final report by the special counsel, Robert S. Mueller III, did not cite anything in it as evidence. The FBI did, however, include portions of the dossier in applications to wiretap a former foreign policy advisor for the Trump campaign. The Inspector General report sharply criticized the FBI for failing to tell the court in renewal applications that Mr. Danchenko had provided a reason to doubt the dossier's credibility. Mr. Danchenko cooperated extensively with the FBI. Testimony during the trial showed. At first, he discussed how he had learned the rumors while researching for Mr. Steele, and he later helped the Bureau uncover unrelated Russian influence operations inside the United States. The Bureau made him into a paid confidential informant. But Mr. Durham accused Mr. Danchenko of lying to the FBI about two things. The first charge was denying that he had talked to Charles Dolan, a lobbyist with ties to Democrats, about material in the dossier. In a somewhat equivocal statement, Mr. Danchenko said he had not. But Mr. Durham uncovered an email in which Mr. Dolan had conveyed a minor claim about office politics in the Trump campaign that appeared in the dossier. An FBI agent testified that what Mr. Danchenko said was literally true, since they had communicated about that particular rumor in an email. The judge acquitted Mr. Danchenko of that charge last week. The remaining four charges centered on Mr. Danchenko's assertions that he received a call in July 2016 from a man who did not identify himself, but who Mr. Danchenko thought might have been Sergei Milian, a former president of the Russian-American Chamber of Commerce. The two agreed to meet, but the man never showed, Mr. Danchenko said. At the trial, prosecutors tried to cast doubt on whether any such call had happened and, if it did, whether Mr. Danchenko really believed at the time that it was Mr. Melian. But the evidence was insufficient to persuade the jury. 
Mr. Durham's failure to secure convictions leaves his inquiry with only one courtroom achievement, but it was developed by different investigators. Mr. Durham's team negotiated a guilty plea that resulted in no prison time for an FBI lawyer who admitted doctoring an email used in a wiretap renewal application. But the Inspector General's inquiry uncovered that problem, gathered the evidence, and made the criminal referral. In his closing arguments on Monday, Mr. Durham denied that his appointment by Mr. Barr had been political and appeared to offer a broad defense of his investigation, asking the jury to revisit the origin of his work. Mr. Mueller's report, Mr. Durham said, concludes there's no evidence of collusion here or conspiracy. Is it the wrong question to ask? Well, then, how did this get started? While Mr. Mueller did not find sufficient evidence to charge any Trump associate in a criminal conspiracy with Russia, his report detailed numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign and established that each expected to benefit from the other. And the Inspector General report already showed how the Trump-Russia investigation started. After Moscow hacked Democratic emails and gave them to WikiLeaks, a foreign diplomat shared that a Trump campaign advisor had previously bragged about an apparent offer by Russia to anonymously release information damaging to Hillary Clinton. Both the Sussman and Danchenko cases produced a parallel criticism of Mr. Durham and his team that in pursuing charges, they damaged national security. In the Sussman matter, the Durham team brought intense pressure upon a group of cybersecurity experts who had generated the tip Mr. Sussman conveyed to the FBI, which involved odd Internet data they thought might suggest hidden communications between Mr. Trump and Russia. The FBI briefly looked at the data but dismissed their suspicions. Lawyers for the data scientists said Internet experts routinely tell the government about online security threats, but that Mr. Durham's tactics would discourage people from speaking up in the future. In the Danchenko matter, an FBI agent who was Mr. Danchenko's handler testified that his network of contacts had offered unique insights into malign Russian influence operations the Bureau had been unaware of. The agent, Kevin Helson, said the FBI had established a squad based on Mr. Danchenko's reporting. Mr. Helson added that other agents still asked him to relay questions to Mr. Danchenko, but he could no longer follow up with him. Because the special counsel indicted him, Mr. Spears asked? Yes, Mr. Helson replied. And now with the primaries coming up soon, here's an article that applies. The title of this article is, what does abortion mean? Even the word itself is up for debate. Even after five decades of argument about abortion in the United States, the most contentious question newly at the forefront is a very basic one. What is abortion? Major medical societies and medical billing codes define abortion as any procedure that terminates a pregnancy whether that pregnancy is wanted or unwanted, whether a woman is seeking the procedure to clean out her uterus after a miscarriage, 
or because of a dire fetal diagnosis or to terminate a pregnancy that she, did, that she had not expected. An abortion is an abortion is an abortion, said Dr. Louise King, an obstetrician gynecologist and bioethicist at Harvard Medical School. Anti-abortion lawmakers and groups disagree, arguing that it's an abortion only if the woman or her medical provider elects to end the pregnancy. This generally means that terminating a pregnancy in a dire medical situation is acceptable, while terminating an unwanted pregnancy is not. During the five decades that Roe v. Wade established a constitutional right to abortion, this was mostly a semantic dispute. But in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe, simply defining the word abortion has taken on new political, legal, and medical consequences. States are struggling to define what they will and will not allow. Doctors, too, are grappling. Those in states that now ban abortions say they have stopped providing the procedures because violations of the law can result in lengthy prison terms, large fines, and the loss of a medical license. Most laws allow for exceptions to save the life of the pregnant woman, but uncertainty about what qualifies as life-threatening has resulted in what the president of the American Medical Association called chaos as medical professionals try to decide what conditions fall under those exceptions. Women are being denied abortions for miscarriages and to end pregnancies that have little or no chance of survival or left to become sicker before they can have an abortion deemed to be life-saving. That has put politicians who helped enact those laws, largely Republicans, on the defensive in midterm election campaigns. Under fire, they have tried to carve out new definitions of abortion and blame doctors for misunderstanding. Anti-abortion politicians in Louisiana faced outrage in August when a hospital denied an abortion to a woman carrying a fetus that doctors said would be born without a skull. One of the state's three bans allowed abortion to end medically futile pregnancies. But the fetus's condition, acrania, was not specifically included on a list of exceptions allowed under the law. Jeff Landry the state's attorney general, blamed doctors, saying, it is the hospital that has created ambiguity where there is none. Assuming such a diagnosis was properly certified, the removal of the unborn child is not an abortion, he wrote in a letter to the hospital's general counsel. Katrina Jackson, a Democrat who sponsored one of the state's abortion bans, told a local television station that the procedure the woman had been seeking was not an abortion. This woman is seeking a medical procedure for a pregnancy that is not viable outside of the womb. The woman ended up traveling roughly 1,400 miles to a Planned Parenthood clinic in New York where she terminated her pregnancy with an abortion. Medical societies and doctors who support abortion rights say defining abortion by intent is a distinction without a difference because any termination proceeds with the intent to end that pregnancy. 
And the procedures are the same regardless of whether a woman has had a miscarriage or seeks to end an unwanted pregnancy. Surgically, an abortion involves dilation and curatage, or dilation and evacuation. A medical abortion is done with pills. They accuse anti-abortion activists of trying to add a value judgment, one intended to suggest that abortion is something only promiscuous women get. When something sad or devastating happens, you're always going to hear the anti-abortion movement saying that is not abortion because they can't come to terms with the fact that that is also an abortion, said Jenny Ma, who has litigated against abortion bans as senior staff attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights. You can add all sorts of different words. You can say induced delivery. You can say, quote, unquote, elective, but it's the same, she said. It's all part of how abortion has been stigmatized. Soon after Roe was overturned, Ohio doctors denied an abortion to a 10-year-old girl who had become pregnant by rape because the state's ban on abortions after detection of fetal cardiac activity, generally around six weeks of pregnancy, does not include any exception for rape victims. However, Catherine Glenn Foster, the president of the anti-abortion group Americans United for Life, testified in Congress that it would probably impact her. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Life, and so therefore it would fall under any exception. It would not be an abortion. Anti-abortion groups argue that states have carefully crafted bans to make sure that anyone who needs an abortion for medical reasons receives one. That's not the same as elective abortion, abortion that is done for the primary purpose of producing a dead baby, said Dr. Donna Harrison, the chief executive of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Still, only some state bans, Texas for example, specify that the procedure is not abortion if it is done to treat a miscarriage. Others, including Arizona and Wisconsin, make no exception for that. The terms for abortion and miscarriage are so intertwined that in those laws written in the 19th century, abortion is defined as procuring a miscarriage. The language around pregnancy has long been subject to fierce debate. In the early 2000s, this anti-abortion group successfully pushed for a federal ban on an extremely rare termination procedure that is typically done in the second trimester known medically as intact dilation and evacuation, by rebranding it partial birth abortion. But in the new debate over defining abortion, abortion rights groups say they themselves may have unintentionally created confusion. 
Even when Monroe was the law of the land, hospitals often set up committees to decide whether abortion was ethical or justified as therapeutic. So the abortion rights groups set up freestanding clinics to try to expand access. Dr. Jamila Pirrett, an obstetrician-gynecologist and the president of Physicians for Reproductive Health, said that encouraged the belief that abortions done at clinics were not the same as those done in doctor's offices or hospitals where a woman was ending a pregnancy because of cancer treatment or because of a fetal abnormality. I had patients tell me, I'm not like the rest of them. They were careless, Dr. Parrott said. Doctors often soften language when speaking to patients, especially women who are devastated by a miscarriage or a dire fetal diagnosis, both of which carry their own stigmas. Rather than saying termination, they may talk about miscarriage and evacuation or helping along a natural process, even as they note it as abortion in the medical chart. Dr. King at Harvard compared it to discussions of other sensitive topics, talking with patients about body mass index rather than morbid obesity or a mass instead of a tumor for cancer diagnosis. But then weaponizing and politicizing language is highly inappropriate and unethical, she said. We don't want patients to have to be mired in politics when they're going through an incredibly difficult time in their lives, she added. But when you write a law, the law has to use the accepted terminology. And when I make sure I'm adhering to that law, I can only use that accepted terminology. Even women who have had abortions may draw a distinction between a procedure after a miscarriage and an abortion. Some are now reconsidering their own medical histories. Chrissy Teigen, the model and television personality, announced at a conference and on social media in September that discussions after the Supreme Court decision made her realize that a miscarriage she publicized in 2020 had in fact been an abortion. Her fetus in the second trimester had absolutely no chance and her own life was at risk. Her announcement, the Hollywood Reporter said, she confessed it, inspired the actress Jenny Mullen to an- announce that she, too, had abortions in- to treat two miscarriages. Anti-abortion groups and lawmakers argued that Ms. Teagan was wrong to call the procedure an abortion and accused her of changing her words for political gain. LifeNews.com wrote that doctors did not purposefully kill her unborn son, and Ms. Teagan and her family did not want him to die and mourned his death even though he never lived outside the womb. Anti-abortion groups don't always agree on the definition of acceptable abortion. Dr. Harrison, for example, said she does not believe that the procedure is the right response to rape or for a fetus diagnosed with a deadly anomaly. While the pregnancy of the 10-year-old Ohio girl was a horrible social disaster, Dr. Harrison said, that pregnancy was not a threat to her life. Similarly, she said, fetuses with what she termed a life-limiting diagnosis can be carried to term in perinatal hospice care. 
Abortion rights supporters say the debate should not be about what exceptions to allow in state laws because those carve-outs can't account for every possibility. They may even aggravate the stigma around abortion and pregnancy loss. We're creating this narrative that some people deserve care and some people don't, said Dr. Kristen Brandy, the Darney Landy Fellow at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. In medicine, we don't have that divide based on reason or the divide based on situation. It's more, the pregnancy needs to end for whatever reason, and we will provide that care because that's what the person in front of us needs. And now for our final article, we'll leave the front page of the digital edition of the New York Times and move inside to Section B, page 1. The title of this article is Retailer's Holiday Wish That Strapped Shoppers Will Spend. In 2020, it was pandemic closures and social distancing. Last year, it was the supply chain. Now, the problem is demand. For retailers, that may make this holiday season their biggest test yet. The holidays are the most important time of the year for retail. November and December can account for up to a quarter of the annual sales of department stores and specialty retailers. Companies place orders for seasonal and holiday merchandise months in advance so that they have enough stock on hand. The primacy of the holiday season has pretty much held steady even during the turbulence of the pandemic. Whether through curbside pickup operations or a pivot to more expensive air deliveries during last season's crunch, retailers still benefited from people ready to spend on all manner of products. Now, as Americans head into the season when they're prodded into prodded to spend with abandon on holiday gifts, they aren't showing the same willingness to do so. You've had consumers that have had to weather a lot, said Vivek Pandya, a leading analyst at Adobe Digital Insights, pointing to higher prices for gas, groceries, and everyday services that have defied the Federal Reserve's efforts to control inflation. Overall, Consumer demand for everyday goods and services remains robust, and prices continue to increase at a faster-than-expected pace, but nearly 60% of U.S. shoppers say finances are factoring into their holiday shopping decisions, according to a survey by Sensormatic Solutions, released this month. That's up from 14% last year. One in five holiday shoppers will spend less this season because of a changed economic situation, a recent survey from the NPD Group, a marketing research firm, found. This holiday season, retailers have to think about the pivot a little bit more to win the consumer compared to only thinking about the profit margin from the purchase, Mr. Panja said. Now, with demand being weaker, they really have to go out of their way to advertise to consumers and get consumers with the highest likelihood to spend. 
But discounts eat into retailers' profit margins, and they have been able to employ that strategy only sparingly in recent years. During last year's holiday season in particular, retailers recorded bigger margins thanks to supply chain log jams. Inventory was low, and shoppers were clamoring to get their hands on products. The result? Fewer discounts. A lot of that is going to reverse, if not more than reverse, across department stores and specialty apparel, said David Silverman, a senior director at Fitch Ratings. Consumers are less compelled to buy, and they're going to need the call to action. It's a very difficult time for any company that sells things. The Fed has spent this year trying to combat near-record inflation by raising interest rates to tamp down consumer spending. Retailers have too much merchandise that shoppers no longer want. Consumer spending on durable goods has been easing over the past couple of months, according to data from the St. Louis Fed. Many retailers have recently revised their full-year financial outlooks, halted hiring, and closed stores. Amazon is freezing corporate hiring for its retail business for the rest of the year. Peloton is laying off about 12% of its workforce in its fourth round of job cuts this year. FedEx is halting hiring and closing stores as demand falls. Walmart plans to hire fewer seasonal workers this year. The Gap is cutting 500 corporate positions. A disappointing holiday season could lead retailers to further reconsider business strategies resulting in restructurings and layoffs in 2023. They're trying to reset just like the entire world is, Liza Amlanai. The founder of the consulting firm Retail Strategy Group said of the industry, Foot traffic in stores has yet to rebound to pre-pandemic levels. In September, it was down 8.8% in department stores and 8% in specialty apparel from last year, according to Placer.ai, which tracks foot traffic through mobile phone data. Compared with 2019, department store foot traffic was down 24% and specialty apparel down 14.5%. And online sales growth in November and December is expected to be anemic compared with the past two holiday seasons. According to Adobe Analytics, online sales are expected to increase just 2.5% to $209.7 billion this year. That is a far cry from the 33% growth in 2020 and the 8.6% growth last year. The holiday season is always characterized by proclamations of lower prices and can't-miss deals, but executives have said in earnings calls and interviews that they anticipate more discounts than usual this year across the industry. We expect the broader marketplace to be more promotional through the end of the holiday season, Harmit Singh, the chief financial officer of Levi Strauss, said in an earnings call this month. Dave Kimball, the chief executive of Ulta Beauty, said his company would be pushing its customer loyalty program and promotional events like Holiday Beauty Blitz, 
which includes weekly sales prices on makeup and skin care of up to 50%. This year, we have some competing influences versus the last couple of years, Mr. Kimball said in an interview. We know that consumers are adjusting to economic changes and inflationary pressures more broadly. We think that's going to be the case this holiday. And this concludes the reading of New York Times for today. Insufficient time remains to conclude the reading of this article. Your reader has been Mary Sue Hoskins. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please feel free to call us at area code 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening, and now, please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.